Luke chapter 7, verse 11, and we're going to read through to verse 23. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those who carried it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he, said to them, um, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Victor. Uh, it's, a real, it's a real pleasure and a great delight to be here with you this morning. So uh, thanks very much, John, for the invitation. Uh, but really good to be back here and great to see some familiar faces and uh, really encouraging to see a whole sea of new ones as well. So uh, thanks for having me. Uh, If you'd like to keep Luke chapter 7 open in front of you, we're just looking at verses 18 to 23 this morning. Uh, But let's ask first for the Lord's help as we come to his word. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning, Lord, uh, be gracious to us as we come before you as we sit here with your word open in front of us in our laps. Uh, Lord God, by your spirit, uh, bring home to us this morning the truth of your word. Father, we pray and we long to hear your voice this morning. So, Father, please speak. We pray and ask for your spirit's help in our hearts and minds and with our wills as well. Uh, Lord, please Convince our minds of the truth of your word, move our hearts to obey and quicken our wills to put into action what we learn. Uh, Lord, save us from being people who, uh, as James tells us, uh, look into a mirror and then walk away and forget what we look like. Lord, what we learn here this morning, please give us the strength and the will to put into action uh, for your holy namesake. So we ask this morning that you would glorify your name and honour the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
About seven years ago when I was uh, working at Sydney Missionary and Bible College, uh, we were running a preaching conference and uh, another faculty member, Sam Chan, and I had the great pleasure of uh, taking two of our guest speakers out for dinner, uh, Dr Brian Chappell and Dr John Woodbridge. They were two American gentlemen. So we took them to a nice restaurant in the city that had uh, a decent view and as we were having dinner we got talking about our favourite TV shows and Brian Chappell mentioned that uh, one of his favourite TV shows was Antiques Roadshow. If you've never seen it, uh, it's, a, it's a show where uh, collectible and antiques experts travel around the British Isles, they camp in a city or a town for a few days and the locals bring out all of their treasures from their attics, basements, cupboards, everywhere and have those things valued. And sometimes if you've watched the show, uh, there's some weird and wonderful things there that turn out to be worth not much at all. Uh, but every now and again there are some extraordinary things that turn out to be worth tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of British pounds. So we swapped a few of our favourite stories uh, from the show and then Brian told us his own Antiques Roadshow story. Uh, years earlier he'd been asked to preach at a conference in Japan and one of the delegates at the conference asked him to come to his parents' home with him uh, after one of the afternoon sessions of the conference to meet his parents. So uh, Brian agreed and went to this man's home. He said even though it was obvious that the family was poor, from the moment that he walked through the door they didn't stop showering him with gifts. And it went on for so long all afternoon it got to the point where uh, not only was Brian embarrassed, he said, but he was starting to wonder how he was going to get all this gear home with him in his bag. So he said uh, to this man's parents, please stop, no more, no more. And they said, okay, no more, but just one more. <laughs> and then the lady of the house, uh, this delegate's mother, bought out and presented to Brian a beautiful and very neatly folded kimono and gave it to him. Brian could see that it was uh, a beautiful thing and so accepted that and uh, that was it for the gift giving. And Brian took that kimono home and showed it to his wife Kathy, she loved it and they had it mounted, uh, framed and hung on the wall as he's often done. A few years later, uh, Brian was the, uh, he was the president of Covenant Seminary, uh, a Presbyterian theological college in the US. A few years later they were showing a group of students of the seminary uh, through their home, they, the students were there for dinner and uh, one of those students was a Japanese girl. When she walked into the room in the chapel's house where the kimono was hanging on the wall, her jaw, Brian said, hit the floor. And she said, where did you get that? And so Brian told her the story and she could hardly speak. Uh, while she was sort of uh, trying to get her voice back, the other students were horsing around just saying, I suppose you're going to tell us it's worth a lot, you could buy a car with that. When she uh, recovered her voice, she said, uh, not only is that kimono every thread made of silk, but she said, every thread is inlaid with gold. That is the kimono of the royal family of Japan. She said, what you have hanging on your wall is a Japanese national treasure. Not only could you buy a car, you could buy a Rolls Royce with that. Now, as Sam and I sat in the restaurant listening to Brian tell the story, we only had two questions for him. Brian, is it still in your house? What's your address? Let's go. <laughs> Brian and Kathy Chappell thought they had a beautiful but ordinary kimono when all the time they had an absolutely spectacular one. 
Sometimes in life we miss the spectacular because we're not expecting it to look so ordinary. We expect what is sensationally valuable to look pretty spectacular and we expect what is ordinary and run-of-the-mill to look pretty ordinary and run-of-the-mill. We expect a $50,000 lady's watch to look pretty spectacular. We expect a brickie's wheelbarrow to look pretty ordinary. So when that gets reversed, when the spectacular comes to us clothed in the ordinary, we can miss it. Much of the time, our expectations of God can function the same way. We can expect that when he acts in our personal life or in the world, because he's God, it's going to be all Red Sea and Jericho. It's going to be massive, it's going to be spectacular, you won't miss it. We can expect that because he's God, when he speaks to us or addresses the world, that it will be like Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning and earthquakes and smoke. Everyone will listen. So what happens when he doesn't work that way? What happens when you and I expect the spectacular from him but what we get is the ordinary. How do we handle that? Well, the answer is here in Luke chapter 7, if you've got it open in front of you. If you look there in verse 18, Luke says, John's disciples told him all these things. That is, everything that Jesus has been doing and saying in his public ministry. So if you look back there over chapter 7, Uh, and part of what uh, Victor read for us. In verse 11, Jesus has just raised a widow's only son uh, uh, from the dead in a small town called Nain, right up in the north of Israel, a very, very small town. Then back in verse 1 of chapter 7, uh, you'll see there the story of how Jesus has healed the servant of a Roman centurion up in Capernaum, which is even further north than Nain, right up northeast of the Sea of Galilee. If you look back into chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching the crowds, love your enemies, do not condemn one another. The result in verse 16 of chapter 7 is that the crowds are filled with awe, Luke says, and they praise God. They're sure that Jesus is a great prophet sent by God. And the news of that spreads through all Judea, Luke says. But look at what John does when his disciples tell him what's been happening. Verse 18, he calls two disciples and sends them to Jesus with one question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? So while the crowds hear and rejoice, John hears the same thing and he wonders, he questions Jesus. What he's really asking is, are you the Christ or not? Is it a serious question? 
Surely John, John the Baptist, knew the answer. John had baptised Jesus. He'd stood there while he'd seen the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. He'd heard God's voice from heaven saying, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. So it must be, surely, that John is sending his disciples to Jesus with this question because they've got doubts. And that's certainly the way some people understand what's happening here. But look at what Luke tells us. If you just flick back to chapter 3 of Luke and look in verse 16, John is out in the desert baptising people and he preaches to them about the Christ in no uncertain terms. If you look in verses 16 and following, he says, when the Christ comes... He will baptise them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will bring God's wrath. The Christ will come with his winnowing fork in his hand and he will come to clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Judgment is coming. Verse 9. And the axe, he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. So repent. John could see the sin in Israel. He could see all the hypocrisy and the compromise of its leaders. He could see the corruption of its officials, the emptiness of its worship. Israel needed to repent before God's judgment came with the Christ. That's what John was expecting. But what did he get in Jesus Christ? He got an ambulance ministry, didn't he? That's what he got. Jesus is out in the back blocks driving his ambulance around, raising dead people, healing sick people. He's a million miles away way out in the sticks, while all the action is in Jerusalem. He's out in Nain, he's wandering around up in Capernaum, he's helping the Romans, weren't they the enemy? He's looking after some widows, he's helping unknown people in backwater towns. In Sydney terms, he's out in Walgett. Jesus is taking a tour of Wewar. Meanwhile, all of Israel's problems are still there, aren't they? The Pharisees still dictate religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The Romans still occupy the promised land. Herod still sits on the throne. John is still where? Where's John? He's in prison sitting in a cell and he never got out. When the Christ comes, didn't the prophets say that he would set the prisoners free? 
Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? It's a real question and it's John's real question. He asked this because in so many ways Jesus turned out to be less than what he expected him to be. John was expecting something spectacular, something mighty, something powerful. And what he got was the ordinary. My father-in-law is a, a very good cook and he has been for a long time, ever since uh, Sarah's uh, parents were married. Uh, he's done almost all the cooking in family life. Within the folklore of her family, there are stories of how at certain times he's become fixated on one certain recipe and then cooked it so many times that the family just can't go near it anymore in the end. I think to be fair to him, it didn't happen a lot, but only on a few occasions. But on one, uh, well, with one recipe uh, that he became a little bit fixated on was uh, one for carrot cake. So quite a long time ago, uh, he made a huge tray of carrot cake and it turned out to be a particularly moist example and uh, the family soldiered their way halfway through the tray until they couldn't do any more and so it got parked in the fridge. Then in a moment of valour, uh, Sarah's mother, who was a school teacher, cut herself off a chunk uh, from the tray in the fridge and took it to school for morning tea. Uh, So she was in the staff room, she was standing up, uh, she had a cup of coffee in one hand and the carrot cake in the other and she was talking to some of the other teachers. Uh, When she bit into the cake uh, without looking at it too closely, she said it was only in her mouth for a second or two before she started to feel it fizz on the top of her tongue. Uh, And when she looked down into the cake expecting to see something orangey-brown because it was carrot cake, Instead, what she saw was dark green and hairy. She'd bitten into the middle of a solid ball of mould. Now, my mother-in-law is a strong woman and because she was standing there talking to other people, she swallowed that mouthful. (laughs) It's more than fair to say for her that her experience with that piece of morning tea uh, was intensely disappointing. (laughs) She was expecting something good. What she got was just a mouthful of mould. My mother-in-law's experience with that cake might be a dim reflection of your experience with God. What you've expected from him and how it's turned out to be. Intensely disappointing. When you look at what's happening here with John the Baptist, there is a powerful combination of forces here. John's personal circumstances, and they are dire. And Jesus' ministry, which just looks weak. And that combination causes him to hesitate causes him to wonder. It causes him to question Jesus. And that's a powerful combination that can affect you and I as well. When your expectations of God as his child for your life are great, 
and he doesn't deliver on them, that can be intensely, bitterly disappointing. Especially if your heart, like John, is to be used powerfully by God for God. If you're there in that space and then you look out at Jesus and think, I pray and I keep praying, your kingdom come. Well, where is it? Because this world's in a mess. Our own culture has the morality, and at times it's very obvious of a pack of wild dogs, doesn't it? We have Medicare-funded abortions in our city. We have teenagers who are actively encouraged to be confused about their sexuality. We have corporate greed that somehow manages to outstrip itself every year, often at the expense of the most vulnerable people. We live in an age where airliners get blown out of the sky and there are no repercussions, where truth is the first casualty of being politically correct, where there's more corruption inside some church denominations than outside and where everyone in our world wants to be spiritual except when it comes to Jesus. Your kingdom come. Well, where's Jesus in all of that? Does it look to you like God is answering that prayer? If you mix your own intense disappointment about your personal circumstances with a view of Jesus Christ and God's work in our world like that, wow, that is a devastatingly powerful combination. And it's only one small step from there to say, are you the one? Or should I look for someone else? In those moments, Jesus becomes less than what we were expecting him to be. Our assumption, of course, is that the problem lies with God, whereas it may rest with our expectations. So how does Jesus answer John's question? Have a look there in verse 21. He points John to his words and his works. He says... If you want to know who I am, listen to what I say. Look at what I do. Luke says in verse 21 that at that very hour when John's disciples arrived to ask Jesus the question, Jesus was healing many. Literally, Luke says, he graced the blind with sight. That's a lovely expression, isn't it? And Jesus answers... Not to John's disciples, note. He sends his answer back to John. And he says, go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. Think about that for a moment. How is that an answer to John? Doesn't that just confirm his worst fears? 
This is an ambulance ministry. But what kind of an answer does John need? What is going to convince John, a prophet of God, that Jesus is the Christ? What about a word from God through prophets past? You see, Jesus answers John in the language of the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah. He echoes the exact language that they use to describe the age of the Messiah, the age of the Christ. And those texts say that one of the signs that the age of the Christ had dawned would be when God's salvation comes to the blind and the lame and the poor and the deaf and the dead. What John believed were the signs of an ambulance ministry were actually the signs that the age of the Christ had dawned. And Jesus is saying to John, if the age of the Christ has dawned, if the age of the Christ is here, then so is the Christ. And John takes, Jesus takes those texts from the Old Testament and applies them to his ministry and says to John, the answer to your question is yes. The answer to your question is yes. Now do you see what Jesus is doing for John here? He's expanding John's expectations. He is redefining for John from Scripture the picture that John has of what the Christ will be like. When you go to the cinema to see a movie uh, and you've finally found a seat where you hope no one, is going to, uh, no one behind you is going to talk all the way through the movie or cough on the back of your neck and you've sat through 20 minutes of ads uh, and movie previews and you settle back in your seat before the movie begins, what happens? The screen gets bigger. That's what Jesus is doing for John here. He's widening his view. He's expanding his vision and he's saying to John, look, there's more. If you go back to what God has said, there is more. The Christ is more than what you've imagined him to be. John is so intent on looking for the Christ in the spectacular, he's about to miss him in the ordinary. He's so focused on finding the Christ in the incredible and the powerful, he's about to miss him in the everyday. But the Christ is in the ordinary. That's what's spectacular. When you read this passage, what is truly spectacular is that when God chooses to enter our world, he comes to the refuse. He comes to the garbage heap of humanity, to the poor and the blind and the lame and the deaf and the dead. He comes to the world's outcasts, the losers, the unimportant, the insignificant. 
He comes to the people who are wretched and defenceless and hopeless. He comes to the physically maimed and the spiritually dead. The Old Testament prophets said, if you want to look for him, if you want to look for the Christ, that's where he'll be. Not with the prominent or the powerful or the influential, not with the beautiful, the self-righteous or the savvy. He'll be with the broken. That's what's truly spectacular about God, isn't it? People miss this all the time because they're looking for someone more spectacular than just a humble carpenter from Nazareth. When I was teaching at SMBC, I used to take students to visit the Mind Body Spirit Festival in at Darling Harbour. It was a, it was a good, instructive visit to see what was filling the spiritual void for people. We usually went about 10 o'clock on a weekday morning. Hundreds of people would be streaming through the door on a workday. There was a wide range of things inside. Everything there you could get done. You could have your aura photographed. You could have your angel guide sketched. You could listen to Buddhist monks chant. You could have a massage. You could drink New Age chocolate. Everything in between. Each year we went, a section of the hall was roped off where for an extra $40 you could have 30 minutes with your choice of a psychic, a clairvoyant, a spiritist or a tarot card reader. About 11 o'clock in the morning that was three quarters full from everyone with mums with prams through the guys in business suits. You see, if the spirit realm is going to speak to me, this is how it will be. It will be spectacular. It will be special. It will be in a dream or a vision or a word from my angel guide. It will be the way the cards fall out on the table. If you ever go, here's my challenge to you. See if you can find amongst everything that's there something that's ordinary. It's all eclectic. Nothing is ordinary. If I walked into that enclosure with a Bible in my hand, sat down alongside a guy in a suit and said, actually, if you want to hear God speak to you, read this. What do you think he'd say? A book? Man, that is so ordinary. You and I know perhaps much more clearly than John the Baptist ever did that God's way is to work in weakness. He uses the weak to shame the strong, the wise to shame the foolish. He brings victory out of defeat, honour from shame. He makes light shine out of darkness. He makes his power perfect in our weakness. And all the way through Luke's Gospel there are reversals The poor are really rich. The lowly are the ones who are exalted. The tax collector goes home justified, not the Pharisee, the religious guy. The least among you, Jesus says, is the greatest. Barabbas gets set free, 
though guilty. Jesus is condemned to die, though innocent. The King of the Jews is nailed to a cross. If there was just one week in Jesus' life where you and I thought just once, just once he could do something really spectacular, that final week was the week, wasn't it? Good Friday was the day. God could have rent the heavens open and struck his enemies down and his son could have been transfigured before all, revealed in all his glory and he could have come down off that cross. But those who mocked him and beat him and spat upon him and crucified him didn't get the spectacular, did they? They just got the ordinary. A carpenter from Nazareth bleeding and dying on a cross, getting a mouthful of mould from God. As one commentator says, those who demanded miracles that week got none but missed the one when when the grave of the dead became the throne of a king. God's ways are not our ways. So in those life circumstances when you question whether God is really working powerfully in your life or in the world around you when you just can't see it, are you prepared to look again in the right places? Because if you're looking for him only in the spectacular, you may well be missing him in the ordinary. God's ways are not our ways. Instead of taking us down an easy road in life, he takes us down a hard one. Instead of granting and fulfilling our every plan and dream, instead he pricks them with a pin. Instead of giving us a life with all of the trappings of success, he gives us one that looks like he's plucked it off the garbage heap. He is not a God who only works in the spectacular who can only work where things are already going well. He is far, far greater than that. He works in the ordinary and then turns that to his glory. That's what's spectacular. So when that happens, will you be able to see him in that and trust him? When God seems so much less than what you are expecting, will you remember this passage and the lesson that he is much, much more than what we've ever imagined him to be? Have a look at verse 23. I'll finish with this. Jesus is very gentle with John. Think of all the things that he could have said to John. I'm so disappointed. Ye of little faith. He could have given John some kind of backhander by telling his disciples about the virtues of a strong faith. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, Blessed 
are you. Blessed are you. Blessed is the one who is not scandalised because of me. What that means is, blessed are you, John, if you don't throw the whole thing in because I'm a different kind of Messiah than you expected me to be. Blessed are you. And blessed are you. Blessed are you. Why? Because the answer to your question, the answer to your question and your question is yes, 